0: Hello there, and welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Adolescent Substance Use, How to Look, Talk, and Listen to Teens About Substance Use, presented by Dr. Selby Conrad. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you.
1: Well... Welcome everyone to the fourth offering in the RISAS Fall Webinar Series, focusing on youth, mental health, trauma, and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. I'm so glad to see so many familiar and returning faces. This series is brought to you by Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Please sign in with your name, your affiliation, what organization you work for, and your role, and do that right in the chat. I'm Sarah Dinklage, the CEO of Rhode Island Student Assistance Services, and I thank you for joining this learning experience on adolescent substance use, how to look, talk, and listen to teens about substance use with Dr. Selby Conrad. I don't know about you, but as a parent of three young adults, I have had to have those hard conversations about substance use, especially when I was concerned. We hope Dr. Conrad's webinar will increase your confidence and make you more likely to have those conversations with your child. Located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we will let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, this is very important, don't forget to complete the post survey. By completing the survey, and only by completing the survey, you will have the ability to receive a certificate of completion, CEUs, and be entered into a drawing to win a $100 gift card. Before introducing our presenter, I want to tell you about our next two webinars coming up in October, which you do not want to miss. On October 13th, Myra Poguero Bueno will present Positive Parenting Strategies to promote healthy lifestyles. This will be in Spanish only. And on October 20th, Dr. Kevin Plummer will present on strategies to support trauma-impacted students in the classroom. To register for these and others, go to our website, www.risas.org. We are extremely fortunate to bring you Dr. Selby Conrad. Dr. Conrad is a child and adolescent psychologist With clinical expertise in the treatment of adolescent substance use and co-occurring disorders. Dr. Conrad completed her PhD at the University of Kansas and her postdoctoral fellowship at the Brown University Consortium in Clinical Psychology. She has worked with adolescents and their families in a variety of settings including juvenile justice, integrated care, residential treatment, and outpatient. Dr. Conrad welcomes questions throughout the presentation, so please write them in the chat and we'll find time to pause throughout in addition to having questions at the end. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Dr. Conrad. Thank you
0: so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to have a discussion about this population of youth that I've spent quite some time I'm part of my career thinking about and intervening with and like was just said I'm really happy to have questions throughout the presentation I'd like it to be applicable for you but if anybody does I part of my role I I direct an outpatient clinic but part of my role at at Bradley um, and with Lifespan is to help people navigate systems of care. I don't know whether or not anybody else believes that's my role, but I've kind of taken it on. Um, And so it's not uncommon for me to field questions um, from parents or providers just about what is in lifespan, but also what's in Rhode Island in terms of of how to kind of help connect people with resources. And um, so if you call that first number, but obviously 401, and just ask um, for, for a message to be sent to me. I will give you, I can't guarantee it's going to be the same day, but I will get back to you. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm happy to, to answer questions that folks have. Signs that parents can watch out for related to, to use, problematic use and then also speak a little bit about um, some resources and what treatment should look like from this particular perspective. And like I said, I'm also very, very happy to answer any questions that you have. So with that said, I looked and looked for more recent data that was presented in this way, and I didn't find it, although I can tell you that um, the current data maps this, it's just not presented as nicely. So this is from 2016, it's from um, NIDA. And in essence, what you're looking at is substance use trends by age. And the reason that I wanted to start here is that you can see sort of down here at the end of the chart, we've got the 12 to 13 year olds. Few and far between are using at that age, but there are some. So that's important. But then, absolutely, when we get to 16, 17, and 18 to 20, right, we're seeing that the rates of substance use over the past um, a month tend to be much higher for those populations. So this is the teens that I work with, and certainly those who are at risk. Um, and there are a whole host of developmental reasons why that is, as teens are learning to explore the world around them. But um, it's an important age group to talk about. We also know trajectory-wise, if youth start, experimenting is not necessarily a poor trajectory but significant substance use at an earlier age is associated with outcomes that are less than we would want them to be in the long run. And so what, what we're hopeful for is that by empowering parents to know what to look for, that they can start to divert some of this earlier. This is national data. This is um, monitoring the futures data, and they, they go out and survey a bunch of different teens in all kinds of states. Um, and again, the, the, 2009, the 2019 data maps onto this, but wasn't uh, presented in as nice a, a table. But what you see is over the course of youth uh, development, that, that what they are using in terms of substances start to shift. So eighth graders and 12th graders, both the most commonly used um, illicit substance is going to be marijuana. However... Pretty quickly for eighth graders, inhalant use becomes the next most popular substance. And that that continues to map on and actually has um, increased use in the past several years. This is stuff that eighth graders have access to. They have access to inhalants in garages, in their homes. um, And so it's something that they're experimenting with. Um, You see by the time it's a 12th grader, right, that inhalants drops way down to the bottom and that it is more medicine that that is used off-label. But I just think it's interesting to think about as parents how we keep a read on our environments and be aware that that... What kids are experimenting with early in their development may shift as they get older. This is another table. This is more recent data that clearly indicates what I was just talking about. So you see the inhalant use is this light blue. It raises into 2020. And and experimentation and misuse of substances, cough medicine, amphetamines, and inhalants continues to rise in eighth graders. So this is what I was just talking about in terms of what they're getting access to. Any questions as of yet? Uh, No questions yet. So as far as Rhode Island goes, and Rhode Island pretty much parallels national averages. There are a few differences, but for the most part, Rhode Island parallels national averages for, for teen substance use. This is kids count data. I don't know how many people are familiar with that, but the state collects data on all kinds of things, ranging from seatbelt use and uh, lead in homes to teen substance use. And um, this is publicly available data. But what you can see is that, and this is um, high school students, you can see alcohol use and marijuana use continue to be very high. The other thing we are going to talk about today is e-cigarette use or vaping because we're seeing nationally just huge shifts in that and Rhode Island is no different. So we're looking at, um, you know, upwards of about 25% of youth are using either alcohol or marijuana and over about 30% are using e-cigarettes. Prescription drug misuse is lower, so 10%, um, but we do see that. So, you know, What that means is that it's there and it's pretty common, but not every kid is using. And I do think that that is an important context for parents to have, because I feel like clinically one of the conversations I'm having a lot is where the teen says, but everybody's doing it," And that's a really common belief on their part. And the reality is, is not everybody's doing it. It may feel like that to them or their environment may have have a lot of use, but that there are a lot of kids who aren't. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to go through alcohol, marijuana, and then nicotine or vaping. And I am going to spend a little bit of time on opiates and heroin, just because I know that that makes a lot of press. Although, frankly, with the teenagers that we see, um, there is some misuse and absolutely some addiction, but it's not as common. But I, I thought I would touch on that a little bit as well. But what we see is that this is pretty common. About 60% of youth report trying alcohol before graduating from high school. Oops, sorry. And um, 15%, um, that's before the age of 13. 13% report binge drinking over the last 30 days. And 51% report trying um in the last sort of period of time before the survey. We see that marijuana use, um, 36% report trying it, and the 7% that is before the age of 13. And again, the before the age of 13 group is important, largely when we think about screening youth in perhaps pediatrician's office and things like that, we want to make sure that we're screening the earlier ages um, because we want to divert any problematic use early on. Um, And then we see, actually, it's interesting because cigarette use at this point is actually down. So about 30% of youth report um, cigarette use, but 42% report some type of vaping in the last 30 years. This is NIDA data. So National Institute of um, Drug Abuse. And what we see is that um, this is by age. So the 18 to 25 age group, far and away over the past um, several years, has the, the most alcohol use. However, we do see that there is some significant use, about one, 1%, um, and this is a problematic use in the 12 to 17 age range it's trending a little bit down, but, um, but none of that has is been significant, statistically significant. So in essence, it's, it's, um, it's remained the same. There have been some studies that have recently come out that say with the pandemic and kids being within their homes, that this has gone up a little bit because the access has increased and because of all of the co-occurring mental health related issues that have come with the pandemic. Alcohol is the most commonly abused substance, although it closely is rivaled by marijuana. And it's found in a variety of substances, beer, alcohol, liquor, those types of things, and sanitizer. That's atypical, but, but but it definitely exists within that. It's, it's something that we do manufacture and that as adults, many of us enjoy. I included the information about a standard drink here because I think that that's actually an important consideration. Oftentimes when talking with youth and emerging adults, it's really important to get a sense of, of how and what they're using and how much. So I mean, I think everybody has seen those wine glasses, right, that are this big, that really holds a half to two thirds of a bottle of wine. That's not one glass of wine. Five ounces is considered one glass of wine, which is significantly smaller than that glass. The other thing to keep in mind, just sort of when thinking about alcohol, is that with um, some of the sh- and we, this actually has happened with marijuana as well, but with some of the shifts in the way that people are manufacturing, um, some of the products actually have way higher alcohol content in them than they have historically. So a double IPA, which many people enjoy, um, is twice the alcohol content of a regular IPA which has more alcohol in it than something like a natty light. And so, again, thinking about what kids are having access to, how they're using that, um, it's important to sort of have that that framework. I am going to talk a little bit about binge drinking, although on a positive note, we have seen that binge drinking has taken a dip over the past several years. There's been a little bit of an increase with the pandemic, but that generally um, binge drinking um, has started to go down in, this, in, the, in the teenage group, which is uh, important and positive note. But it is something that parents need to be aware of and kind of watch out for, because in a world where kids can't go down the street and get a drink in a restaurant, oftentimes they're sort of pre-gaming at part, before parties and things like that um, to consume alcohol that will then last them perceptually throughout the evening. And so that can be very dangerous for those youth if that, that does um, happen. But like I said, we have seen a, a pretty significant dip since um, it peaked in about 2000 in terms of how, how much people are binge drinking. I'm sorry, that's a fuzzy graphic. There are lots of problems associated with underage drinking. And I think it's interesting to consider this. Sometimes when I do work with folks who aren't from this country or even from this country, the thought is, well, what's the big deal? like adults drink and or culturally, like we were drinking at 13 with our family at dinner. And certainly there's some evidence that teaching kids appropriate boundaries around substances through the environment can can be helpful. We do see that there are some significant consequences associated with underage drinking. And so it's just important to be aware of that. Things like school problems, social problems, legal problems. Also, there's some physical issues in terms of like being hungover and not being able to participate in school. We see that there are increased rates of unwanted sexual activity and unplanned pregnancy. Also things like memory problems. You can read the list, but there's, there's a lot there in terms of, of what the literature and the research tells us are consequences of underage drinking. So this is what I was sharing just a moment ago. So we were seeing a gradual decline in use. The blue is eighth graders, the red is 10th graders, and the purple is 12th graders. So not surprisingly, as the age increases, the percentage of youth who are using goes up. Um, But we do see, again, there has been a drop in the binge drinking. And um, really, there's been a drop in alcohol use. It'd be interesting to look at, um, there's been an increase in marijuana use. So I can tell you, in my clinical work, there has been a shift away from perceptions of risk in marijuana, and alcohol is viewed as a bit riskier than marijuana is. And this is for um, five or more drinks, uh, two weeks in a row is what binge drinking is considered. Any questions about alcohol use and some of the associated problems? I could be more mi about it. What questions do people have? People are 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 pretty quiet right now. Fair enough. I'm going to keep trying though. (laughs) So marijuana use actually is increasing in in um, use, and you know there are all kinds of hypotheses about why that is. Certainly, we have seen locally, regionally, um, lots of shifts in the um, laws related to, to marijuana. and with that comes a pretty significant um, dip in perceptions of risk. So we see um, again, that 18 to 25 group right is partaking the most, but that that really the, the 12 to 17 year old is is increasing. For those who aren't familiar with marijuana, I'd be surprised, but we'll, we'll all be on the same page. Um, it is a plant. I can't tell you the number of times I hear kids say, it's natural, so it's okay for me. You know, it was, it was grown in my garden or it was grown in somebody's garden. And so it must be okay. The main psychoactive chemical here is THC. Um, and we see on the market both THC, right? Um, in multiple forms ranging from gummy bears to something that is smoked um, in a joint or a bong and also we now see a lot of cbd so cbd is not a psychoactive ingredient so somebody doesn't get high off of cbd and there is some research um, and there's lots of ongoing research um, looking at whether or not CBD in and of itself is effective at things like helping manage anxiety and inflammation and those types of things. So you see CBD stores. Um, there's one around the corner from my house. Um, they they are, are very much there. Some of the trick with it though, is that you're not quite sure what you're getting because it's not regulated by the FDA. That's true for the um, marijuana stores in Massachusetts as well. Um, the THC specific stores. All kinds of names for this. I feel like it's a moving target, but I did include them just so if you're hearing um, kids speak. Um, and I will also tell you, I feel like I'm always about five years behind. And so I just asked the kids that I work with um, what folks are using in terms of language around this. Um, But this is a whole industry at this point. So people are consuming in a variety of different ways, ranging from edibles um, to inhalants, but then there also are oils. There's just a very wide range of product. And with the wide range of product, there also is a huge range in terms of the potency of that THC that is as present in the product um, and if somebody were to go into a shop in Massachusetts they could actually look at labels and this one will say beginners and this one will say advanced ranging on that the THC amount um, however when when marijuana is purchased from a source that isn't like that and frankly it, it's not regulated so it could be true there too people don't really know what they're getting. And so it's not uncommon for, for um, teens to report that they thought they were only um going to get a little high and it was much more significant. Also, it's not uncommon for marijuana, particularly if it's obtained in, a le- in an illegal manner, um, to be laced with with other substances. So this is what I've been alluding to. It's an interesting chart so you can see over the past, you know, 20 years or so, perceptions that marijuana is harmful has been dropping. I've also seen this graph where you've got perceptions of marijuana risk going this way and perceptions of tobacco risk going the other way. So the public health campaign related to cigarettes causing cancer apparently worked. Um, However, what we see is that there are shifting attitudes in kids and also in families around whether or not marijuana is as problematic um, as was once believed. And what we do know is that that's associated with increased use and and youth. I, I can't say cause and effect wise that that is what's triggering it, but we know that there is less perceived risk. That makes it actually harder to have a conversation around it. um, Because if it's not a big deal, you know, it's not a big deal. And so um, I think it's important to have that context. Not surprisingly, we see um, 12th graders are using way more than um, eighth graders. And it ebbs and flows, but it's been pretty consistent uh, across 12th grade use for the past several years. Um, Although again, with the pandemic, there's been an increase. And then um, there's been a pretty steady decline in eighth grade use. So perhaps some early intervention there has been beneficial. Oftentimes I hear there are no consequences of marijuana use and marijuana use isn't um, addictive. Um, And neither one of those two statements is um, completely supported by research. So what we see is the over time regular marijuana use in adolescents as is associated with cognitive declines. So they're actually, it's been demonstrated that kids who use really regularly their cognitive performance dips, and unfortunately, they don't usually get it back once they stop. Um, adolescence is a period of time where the brain is still hugely developing. And um, so any substance in the body at this point may be impacted. Impacting how the brain grows and develops. Um, we also see that there are some issues with motivation, and so that then impacts um, schooling, education. For folks with family history of psychoses, and particularly with, uh, with family history of psychoses, we see that there's an increased risk that marijuana can actually trigger psychoses. Um, and um, we also see addiction. And, there is a lot of compelling evidence at this point that marijuana is addictive. It's not as addictive as alcohol and certainly isn't as addictive as heroin or opiates, but that when people who have been using regularly stop, there are symptoms of withdrawal. And that's that's been pretty clearly demonstrated at this point. I think one of the difficulties is that it's hard to tell who will have that response and who won't over a period of time. And that's the piece of things that um, I think research is still trying to to figure out how to predict. Teens at this point are much more likely to use marijuana than they are cigarettes. Um, And I think that's important context. I know when I was in high school, cigarettes were way more popular than um, than marijuana use. Um, And so that's just been a shift. And with that, we definitely have seen an increase in vaping but there is also um, an increase in vaping marijuana. And so um, just important to have that context that if one is finding vape pens around, it could be used for either product.
1: Dr. Conrad, someone has asked um, before you move off um, this part, can you talk more about those symptoms of withdrawal?
0: Yes, so I'm happy to, and I can't remember if I have a slide. Let me see. Nope, I didn't. So I'll, I'll stop here and talk about it. So there are usually two phases of withdrawal. The first is acute. Um, and then there are longer term phases, a longer term phase of withdrawal. The first acute phase of withdrawal, the person may have urges and some physiological symptoms, headaches, sort of feeling sick. Um, We don't see a lot of shakes and things like that in marijuana use. But once somebody is through that period, marijuana addiction really is more associated with things like irritability and withdrawal, and then also disrupted sleep is a really big one that we see. Um, And those two things, actually, if people don't know that that's going to be the experience, they say, well, see, it was really helpful in my life because, now I can't sleep because the marijuana was helping me sleep. When in actuality, if they can make it through the period of time, which can be upwards of six weeks, then the body will start to regulate again um, and they can have improved sleep. And it will, I mean, it will, it's not like it goes from bad sleep to good sleep. It, it, there's a transitional phase, but the, the sleep and the irritability tend to be the two big ones. So this is, um, like I was saying, marijuana use in the US remains pretty steady. We've got about 35% of 12th graders having some marijuana use. And then daily marijuana use drops to about 7%. So most kids are using in the context of either recreation or parties or whatnot, but but 35% are endorsing some type of past year use um, at that 12th grade level. Eighth grade, not surprisingly much lower at 11%, but, um, you know, out of, out of a hundred kids, that's 11 that are, uh, are using. And so that's, that's not insignificant. So this is about, um, vaping, marijuana vaping. I included this because again, I think it's really interesting. There's some evidence that the vape pens in and of themselves are not good for place for folks. So then adding the marijuana to that sort of compounds the risk and I'll talk about the pens when I get to the nicotine vaping. But we see that there's actually a pretty significant increase in the past several years around utilizing um, vaping uh, to get high for marijuana. And we see that um, sort of across the board. And so vape pens are easy to store, they're easy to hide and they're easy to transport. And so oftentimes, um, teens will report that, that this is a preferred method because it's, it's more efficient and they're less likely to get caught. And so it's just an important thing to be aware of that that's a a quite popular way, um, to get high at this point. I think gone are the days of standing out behind the high school in the woods, but, um, Perhaps that still happens. Um, Many of the educators would know better than I. I think it's interesting, and I'll pause just for a second and talk about um, marijuana in Rhode Island, because the laws are starting to change. Um, They have in Massachusetts. And again, I hear lots of kids say, well, it's legal, so it must be safe. It's actually not legal yet in Rhode Island, but it's likely going to be. The Senate has voted to legalize marijuana in Rhode Island. That happened over the summer. And, uh, the last article I read about it said that they were planning to, uh, have a special session of, um, lawmakers to try and push the bill through. But, um, that I don't believe has happened yet, but in 2006, medical marijuana was legalized in Rhode Island. Um, and what that meant is that somebody could go to a doctor and get a prescription. And I put prescription in quotes because it's a little bit different than a regular prescription. If I get a prescription for heartburn medicine, my doctor very clearly has written out for me, you know, Selby, take this 20 milligrams at, you know, 9 a.m. Medical marijuana, it's basically allows the person to purchase marijuana, but it's not mapped onto type or amount. And so somebody can actually go to multiple dispensaries and use their card and buy buy certain amounts. But it it is prescribed for many problems, um, HIV, cancer, chronic pain, anxiety, PTSD. But what we see is that it, the data is really wishy-washy about how this particular move has impacted teens. Some studies show that there is an increased risk or rate of um, use, and others have shown that there isn't. Um, and it's interesting to think about. What is clear is what I showed you earlier, which is that the perception of risk dropped right about the time that this happened. Um, so now it's a medicine. Um, and while teens might be, might not be um, engaging more frequently, they might view that it's less risky. In 2012 in Rhode Island, um, marijuana was decriminalized. And actually my work in the juvenile justice system, and I would imagine it paralleled in the adult um, system, there was then no longer um, specific charges. Uh, I mean, certainly if somebody had a lot, then that's a whole different charge, but um, for anything less than an ounce. And so it really shifted the way that youth were being charged for possession. And we don't have data in Rhode Island on whether or not this increased or decreased use among adolescents. Um, And then, like I I said, I think we are headed in the direction of Massachusetts. Um, We'll see what the special session of legislature produces, but um, in Massachusetts, anybody over the age of 21 can purchase marijuana at a dispensary for recreational purposes. Interestingly, marijuana is not legal at all on a federal level. It's still, um, according to the federal government, um, a section one substance, which falls into the same category as as heroin. There've been multiple attempts to change that from a variety of different sources. Um, but it still is a federal crime, even if it's not a state crime, which is interesting. Any um, questions
1: about that? Yes. I gave the option for people to text me if they weren't comfortable putting it in the chat with oh, their okay. name and I, don't, I won't know who it is. So one parent Perfect. is asking, um, when should I get worried about my son's um, marijuana use? Is it right? Is it any use or knowing that it's illegal, but what is the, when do I worry?
0: And I think that that's one of the hardest questions for parents. Um, I think, you know, you start to worry when you see behavior changes that you are uncomfortable with in your child. Um, so if somebody is using marijuana occasionally and um is still doing really well in school, doesn't have any associated problems, hanging out with the same friends, engaged in clubs, depending on the family's belief system, right? Like they may or may not be as concerned about that. The kids who come to see me have associated problems. So failing in school, legal involvement, those types of things really then then warrant intervention because something is going on with that child that is different. Um, But families really need to kind of decide amongst themselves what they're comfortable with in terms of use. Um, And when I get to the parent slides, I'm gonna talk about sort of what that looks like. And what we know is that the earlier people can have discussions about this type of stuff, the better. I have a seven-year-old who if we see somebody smoking a cigarette or whatnot, he now looks at me and says, yeah, mom, I know I don't even wanna hear it because you're gonna tell me about the cigarette." <laughs> but I've just made a point of, of starting to talk about that early. Apparently he's picked up on that. <laughs> um, but, but it's not too late at any point to start having these discussions and figure out as a family, right? And um, as a parent or as a co-parent, um, what makes sense. For that family in terms of what their expectations are related to substance use. So I'm sorry, that's not a real clear line in the sand. That's like, here's when the problem is, but um, I mean, there certainly are families where no use is tolerated. And so that's okay. That's what that, that family has decided. And then there are other families that have said, okay, I'm going to look for some associated problems and have a real low threshold there. But again, once those problems are existing intervention, is needed. Um, and I will tell you that by the time folks get to me, usually the problems have been there for a while. So we wanna divert that earlier and earlier. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about vaping um, and nicotine. Cause this, I think it's very interesting. When I first started this work, vaping was not even a thing. Um, it wasn't on the scene. I had no idea what people were talking about. And now um, everybody is likely aware of it. Um, and the research is coming out about it, but, that that is, is pretty interesting and it absolutely is on the rise in teens. So what we see is that um, there are these e-cigarettes, right, and they usually have multiple different sort of um, components usually these four components: um, the cartridge, um, a heating element which actually has been linked with some metals that are not particularly great for folks, a power source so like a battery, and then the inhaling piece of things. And I included this; it's from NIDA that has a what several of them look like. And um, I think it's really interesting because some of them are made to look even like pens. And so kids will carry them in their backpacks and it looks just sort of like a pen. Whoever is making these um, in some regards are um, marketing them in a way to be kind of clandestine. They would deny that, but um, I think it's pretty clear when something looks like a ballpoint pen that, um, that it's made to kind of like blend in. But these again can be used for vaping nicotine or vaping marijuana. Um, and they're one of the most um, commonly used substances and the most commonly used form of nicotine for adolescents at this point. There's some really interesting research that suggests that some teens don't even know that they're using nicotine because their flavor, these cartridges are flavored in ways like mango or um you know, peppermint or whatnot. And so they think they're just inhaling that and they're not aware that there's a a substance in there that's addictive. And there's a lot of sort of flashy advertising around these products. Um, Like I said, there's no smell, they're easy to hide. And so teens um, have gravitated towards these. There are, uh, teens use these in a variety of different ways. There's this practice called dripping where people actually put the, the liquid directly on the heating element, and it creates a thicker vapor, which some teens report that they like. And so it's just important to know that there are a couple of different ways that this is used. While the data to date suggests that vaping devices might be a little less harmful um, than smoking traditional cigarettes, it's still a very addictive substance. And when a a teenager in particular, but anybody is using uh, nicotine in this way, it's priming the brain's reward system. So the brain, when any substance goes into the brain, like chocolate or caffeine or marijuana, all these sort of bells and whistles go off. And when a brain is primed to look for those things, it starts to seek it out. So, so there's some there's some research here that suggests that vaping nicotine gets the brain sort of in a space where it wants that experience again. And so it mainly the groundwork for, for experimentation in other areas. Interestingly, we also see that teens who have tried vaping are much more likely to try traditional cigarette use, but the reverse isn't true. So teens who've tried a cigarette are less likely actually to try vaping, which is kind of interesting to think about. But what we know is that in addition to the nicotine, which is highly addictive, vaping has a variety of different chemicals associated with it that are added to the solution, including the flavor. And it's it's not a natural flavor, so it's a chemical-based flavor and contains um, nickel um, and chromium and low levels of cadmium, which I, I remember from being a painter, cadmium red was a toxic um, metal that was in that paint. Um, but all of these things can be associated with both breathing issues and then also um, ultimately the development of cancer later. Because these are new, we don't have the long-term data, but the evidence is fairly compelling that there's still some risk for long-term health effects here. Like I mentioned, teen years are pretty critical for brain development. And so um, what we're seeing is, again, that reward system getting primed. And the nicotine use, the way that it it triggers those bells and whistles is mapped on with things like cocaine or methamphetamine. That, that, that's the same bells and whistles light up with those substances. Nicotine also impacts the development of the circuits of the brain that c- control attention and learning and can impact uh, impulse control, mood disorders, those, those types of things. Um, so this isn't a benign substance. And then this is just a graph of what I've been talking about um, where we see the, the vaping on the rise. And then this is current e-cigarette use in Rhode Island which interestingly enough, uh, 31% of high school students um, who are female reported use and 28% of males. And then there's a um, breakdown on race and ethnicity as well. They didn't um, provide information on uh, trans youth. So um, I just had wanted to give a nod to opiates because I feel like, and rightly so, they're very concerning. um, And we definitely have likely all seen headlines about how this has been impacting our communities. Um, What we do see in the data is that for the 12 to 18, I'm sorry, the 12 to 17 year old group and actually all of the groups that opiate use is actually going down. And hopefully that's a result of the massive amounts of um, public health campaigning and intervention related to this um, because it's been such an issue during the past couple of decades. Heroin in and of itself is uncommonly used in teens, um, but not non-existent. So we see that in 2019, the CDC is reporting about 1.8% of youth have reported heroin use. And actually in Rhode Island, 2.4% of youth have reported heroin use. This is also a naturally occurring substance. It's from poppy plant, has all kinds of names and is used in a couple of different ways. creates a sense of short-term euphoria. It also um, can leave people feeling sort of like they're in a in sort of a dream state, flushed skin, um, but then it can also lead to less positive side effects, things like itching, nausea, vomiting. Long-term heroin takes a huge toll on the body. Um, and it's also highly addictive, um, which is part of the reason that it's so difficult for folks to to stop using. What is more common in youth is using opiate prescription pain pills. And I listed a bunch here, so hopefully you have access to this information and you can look at them. But what I think is important to touch on here is that this is kids who are reporting that they used off-label, so it wasn't prescribed to them. And in 2019, about 14% of youth were reporting that they had tried some type of um, pain reliever off-label. 10% of youth in Rhode Island reported using. So um, you can see Vicodin use actually has gone down, but this is the slide I wanted to get to. This is the point I wanted to make because when we look at where teens are getting this, 56% of them have been given them by a relative or a friend and that's where they're getting um, non-medically used pain. Um, And really taking them, like pulling them out of the medicine cabinet is down at about 19.6% and buying them is down at about 17%. So it's it's more often that they were either prescribed them or given them by um, somebody that they know. Um, So it's just important to sort of keep that in mind. I'm just gonna make a note about mental health. <clears throat> when folks and teens are definitely fall in this category, start using and misusing substances, oftentimes that is co-occurring with mental health. Um, this particular slide, you can see that um, about 7% of people over the age of 18 had substance use disorder, and about 20% um, had mental illness. And then there's this 3% in adults, almost 4%, where there's an overlap. What's interesting about the data with teens is that when we look at a mental health sample of teens, we see actually upwards of about 30% of those kids have some type of co-occurring problematic substance use. So what that means is is that if one's child is struggling with anxiety or depression um, or behavioral disruption, we need to be kind of on the outlook for, for substance use, that those ch- children are at higher risk. For um, the, the reverse is actually even higher. For those kids that we already know are using substances in problematic ways, we know that 70 to 90 percent of those kids actually do have a co-occurring mental health condition, so depression or anxiety. And so when we think about treatment, we really want to start to think about treating it treating that together, treating the whole child. Oftentimes you'll see sort of siloed care where one provider is doing substance use and one is doing mental health and really best practices to start to pull this together. This is the other piece of things that I think is worth noting, which is that out of older adolescents who needed treatment, we see that what I just described was both treatment for depression and substance use, only 5% of those youth received a combined package. Many received none, right? So about 53% of those youth who needed treatment didn't get treatment and about 40% got treatment for the mental health condition, but not for the substance use. The substance use treatment alone is the lowest. Um, But again, I just think that that's important to consider as we're about to start talking about what families can do and what treatment um, options there are to think about if this is a concern to make sure that the provider is talking about it all together. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, Hopefully you have a context of sort of where things are, and hopefully it wasn't too much of a downer. Um, I, I, I think sometimes that information can be kind of overwhelming. But take heart because there are lots of things that families and other adults and, and kids' lives can be doing to help mitigate some of the risk here. We know that um, kids start using substances for a huge variety of reasons. Um, certainly culture and society, we have talked about as we gone I've went through many of the slides. Marijuana use is a good example of this. Um, influence kids' use family environment, community, friends, right, all sort of make a difference here. Um, there are some personality or temperament, individual characteristics that can sort of lead somebody to um, enjoy substance use in a different way than others, which can then lead to problem problematic use. And then um, genetics actually play a large role here as well. And so um, sometimes the discussion I have with parents is, well, if substance use or addiction runs in the family, we need to be candid with kids about that and start, I mean, at a developmentally appropriate level, but start talking with them about the risks so that then they're making informed decisions about use. What we see is that families who talk about this and have good quality relationship with their kids generally, the teens use less and so that, that's wonderful because that means that the environment that is created at home, right, means that that can help just by default of having that type of environment is protective for teens. And what we mean by that is relationship quality, which I recognize with teens is kind of a hard sell, right? They don't want a whole lot to do with parents. And oftentimes parents will hear, go away from me. I don't want to talk about this. Like I'm all set here. But the research on this is actually really interesting, which is that teens actually want parents to express that they're interested in them, even if they then say, no, wait, go away. I'm not suggesting that parents should then follow the kid into a room and and say, no, we're going to have a good quality conversation, but that asking and showing interest is something that kids actually want, even if the messaging that they're giving you as a parent is not that. I have to tell you, that's one of the things I find so not reinforcing, right? Like, How hard is it as a parent to try and have a conversation and be told to go away, right? We stop doing it. But I would encourage parents to continue to try to have that quality relationship and also to find things that you enjoy doing together, even in challenging times. So when there are problematic behaviors or whatnot, not just focusing on those, I mean, certainly addressing them, they're important but also remembering the things that you enjoy about being together. Communicating about substance use is another piece of things that's, that's important. And that was what I was talking about earlier with the great question that we had. As early as feels comfortable, or maybe even a little before then, starting to talk about what families value about substance use, um, what, what their expectations are, what some of the risks are, what some of the family risks are right having those discussions up front can be really really helpful the other piece of things that we know is is quite protective is monitoring and so Figuring out how to do that in a way that your teen doesn't feel completely stifled, although that's what they'll tell you. And making sure that you're aware of, of some of the signs and symptoms of problematic use. And then modeling is another area that becomes important in the research. And it's sort of a no-brainer that kids learn from the environment that they're in. I always have to kind of remind myself of that though, right? Like if my kid gets testy with me, is it because I just was testy with him, right? Maybe because I'm not modeling it um, in in the way that I'd like to. So like I was saying, spending time together helps improve that relationship. Open communication just generally. Directly addressing conflict is another piece of things that um, we talk with parents about quite a bit. Like, I know this is uncomfortable, or I know we had a fight about this, but let's, let's talk about why we have a difference of agreement. And then seeking help when needed. Um, I can tell you all of this goes better when the parent is able to keep their emotions in check. And so I know that that's hard. And so making sure that parents are picking times when they feel like they, they aren't as triggered, because if, if a parent is already feeling anxious or scared or worried or angry, the teen's going to go there too. And those conversations are not as great. And some of what we do in family therapy is really help people learn to recognize when is a good time and when is not so good time to have those conversations. So, here are some tips that um, can be really helpful in terms of communicating specifically about substance use. So, knowing what your own values are, uh, making sure that um, uh, you know what your family wants communicated. You know what your family's expectations are and what you believe is and is not okay. Um, it's hard to talk about those things with a kid if we don't have a clear sense ourselves. So it's probably worth thinking a little bit about that. Be prepared for difficult questions. A difficult question that often comes up is, did you get high when you were my age, right? Be prepared for sort of how to navigate that and what your comfort level is. Some parents are comfortable answering that question. Some are not, um, but knowing sort of where that boundary is um, for each individual parent is important. The earlier we start this in a child's development, um, is great. Um, it doesn't mean that if you haven't started it, you shouldn't. But it just if you're able to start earlier, that tends to um, to help uh, this process. Having an ongoing conversation and not like a talk tends to also be better for teens so what I mean by that is not just sitting down and saying okay we're going to talk about substance use now and that's sort of like one and done and walk away um, but rather weaving it into conversations that that make sense during you know the day or or the year um, and using teachable moments asking open-ended questions so what did you think about that what are your values about this what are your thoughts about this right here are what mine are sets a stage that you want to have a conversation, knowing what your expectations are and what consequences that you want to have in place and be really clear. So it can be that the teen values something different than you do, and that's okay. But in our house, we do things this way. And if this doesn't happen, then this is the clear consequence. Um, They may not agree with it, but at least it's clear. And then um, be firm and honest um, and try not to be punitive or fear-based and that's hard to do. Um, Very, very hard to do. And so that's sometimes why folks come to see somebody like me is I can help practice or couch things in a different way because this can be scary stuff. Um, Any questions about that? So as far as monitoring goes, um, we know that there are five W's that tend to be really great to to uh, sort of pay attention to who teens are going to be with, what they're going to be doing, where they are and what time they'll be home and where, where they're going, understanding the differences in, and situations. So after school, sleepovers, those types of things, but knowing, really knowing where the kid is going to be and knowing how to get in contact with them. I said, I put my cell phone away. I was about to show it. Cell phones make this really hard because cell phones, right? It's like, but you can just call me anytime. You don't need to know where I'm going to be. You, you've got my phone. But we find that this actually works best when there is a really clear statement of this is where I'm going to be. And the expectation is, is that that is where the kid is. Knowing their peers and then talking with other parents also can be an effective ways of monitoring teens. And then being a role model is the last one. And this one's hard too. Um, so I included this, uh, my goblet of wine statement, but the the mom is saying, I need a parent of three teens size glass of wine, right? And I'm not saying that parents shouldn't participate in whatever substances they want to. However, I do think it's important that they're aware of the message that they're sending to their children when they do that. Um, And that I do think we see again and again in the literature is that family environment and sort of what is normalized within that that family environment is very clearly linked to how teens perceive what they they can and should be doing. Again, not easy, but nothing about parenting is. <laughs> so I have a couple of warning signs I recognize I'm over too, but I'll go through these quickly. And here are just some signs to look out for as parents are monitoring. So, and certainly one of these or two of these alone is not like, okay, where are the drugs? Right. But, but part of the bigger picture. Um, but personal appearance in kids that have started problematic substance use oftentimes does slide. So being messy, poor hygiene, red flushed uh, cheeks. Um, sometimes parents will find like burns or soot on clothes. The first two also are associated with depression. So they might not be substance use at all, right? So, um, Again, just these are warning signs generally, but also about substance use. So clenching teeth, smelling of smoke, um, chewing gum or mints, using lots of eye drops. Then there's some behavioral things. So breaking curfew, being reckless driving, avoiding eye contact, like locking doors, going out every night, taking secretive phone calls. Those types of things can be, be behaviors that parents may observe. And then these are behavioral issues, um, which also can be associated with problematic substance use. And so that's change in relationships, um, loss of inhibitions, loud or obnoxious behavior, um, suddenly feeling like withdrawn or depressed, being silent or uncommunicative inability to focus, I'm just picking out some of these, but um, obviously there's a huge list here. Um, Periods of sleeplessness, disappearance for long periods of time, just sort of general warning signs that something is amok here, but they absolutely map on with problematic substance use as well. We also see schoolwork issues, Um, sometimes legal issues, physical health issues. So sometimes asthma that was always controlled won't be controlled anymore, um, things like that. And then um, sometimes the associated mental health issue is what um, is observed. So depression, anxiety, um, and again, keeping in mind that those kids are at higher risk. If somebody is concerned about their child, there are lots of different types of treatment that can be effective, and that's good news. So ideally, kids are being screened at their pediatricians for this from about the time that they're 10 or 11. Um, There's a screen called the CRAFT that many primary care settings give, and that would then indicate whether or not some type of intervention was done. Brief intervention can be done in the site that the screening occurred or perhaps in a school setting by... I'm, dare I say, a counselor in the school setting, <laughs> um, um, but, um, but if a child is needing more, outpatient is usually the next referral. An outpatient usually meets once a week for therapy. It, it may include family work. It may or may not include substance screens, um, but that's sort of your traditional once a week, 45, 50-minute therapy session. From there, in-home services may be um, needed, and those services are designed to provide treatment for the teen and the family in home. They're much more intensive. Oftentimes, they're two to three times a week for several hours, and they do often include some type of toxicology screen. There are also programs such as IOPs, which meet after school, partial hospital programs, which meet during the day, and then ultimately acute or residential substance use treatment, which provides a 24-hour care. Um, That's when things, um, when the the teen is no longer able to live in the home environment and is needing a a break from that in order to heal. As far as types of therapy go, as I mentioned um, before, thinking about a co-occurring package is really important with teens. So providers who are going to address both the mental health and the substance component in the same treatment session. And the evidence is really overwhelming that that's the most effective. But if a teen does not appear to have a co-occurring presentation, substance use therapy specifically can be helpful as well. So talking with kids about treatment is really important. Sometimes in my office, I'll get somebody who's like, I don't know, I'm here because my mom just dragged me here. And like, then the mom is like, it's because of the marijuana I found in your closet. That's okay. I can deal with that. But typically talking with folks ahead of time is, is, is great. And sometimes I'll work with parents around how to do that before the teen even comes to my office. Consulting with the treating provider and having a child assessed is another good place to start. And also recognizing that this type of treatment also involves family work. Um, And that that's a really important component. Kids don't live in a vacuum. And so um, helping to support that environment and making changes that that work for everyone in it is important. Um, And so all of the things that we talked about in terms of parental monitoring, the standard of care here is something called MET-CBT, which is um, motivational enhancement therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's meeting where kids where they are, helping to understand their goals and aspirations in life and get them hooked into therapy. And then from there, CBT teaches a very specific skill set to help them solve problems, think about things differently, manage urges, cravings, social situations, but all of those things are greatly enhanced with family involvement. These are a few resources um, locally, if you're interested in um, treatment, and I'm certainly happy to talk with anybody as well. And then these are a lot of my references, but in addition to that, they're really helpful websites in terms of um, getting more information about specific substances of concern, and uh, they just have really good information. So in a a worldwide web that um, can oftentimes present untrustworthy data, all of these particular sites have very um, solid science behind them. So that's all I have. I'm happy to answer any questions that folks have. I know I ran over. I apologize.
1: I just wanted to add an important resource um, that's embedded in 70 middle and high schools in Rhode Island, um, Rhode Island Student Assistance services, places, master's degree level counselors right in the school. So if a parent is concerned and they don't know whether the, their child needs treatment or not, you can make a confidential referral right to the uh, student assistance counselor who's not hired by the, by the school. They're, you know, they're um, employees of a um, separate organization, but they work collaboratively, but you can make a confidential uh, referral. And if you want to know if your school um, has a student assistance counselor, again, go to our website and you'll see participating schools and actually the name of the student assistance counselor and how to contact them.
0: Which is amazing.
1: People have just expressed appreciation for the (laughs) webinar. Astrid talked about a a new documentary on Hulu that she recommends um, families might watch together called Move Fast and Vape Things. She put this in the chat with a link to it. Great. Um, it's a good family, um, you know, discussion springboard, she says. Um, yes. So people are thanking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And I will say, um, and I forgot a one, so that's 401 at Bradley. But if anybody does, I, part of my role, I, I direct an outpatient clinic, but part of my role at, at Bradley um, and it, with Lifespan is to help people navigate systems of care. I don't know whether or not anybody else believes that's my role, but I've kind of taken it on. Um, And so it's not uncommon for me to field questions um, from parents or providers just about what is in lifespan, but also what's in Rhode Island in terms of of how to kind of help connect people with resources. And um, so if you call that first number, but obviously 401, and just ask um, for, for a message to be sent to me. I will give you, I can't guarantee it's gonna be the same day, but I will get back to you. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm happy to, to answer questions that folks have.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Conrad, and thank all of you for attending. Remember to complete that survey, and we hope to see you back on October 13th if you are a Spanish-speaking parent, to hear Myra um, Paguero Bueno, and on October 20th to hear Dr. Plummer deliver on classroom strategies for trauma-impacted students. Have a wonderful long weekend. Thanks
0: for listening. If you enjoyed this audio lecture and would like to hear more like it in the future, please remember to like, share, and subscribe. To find more information on Rice-Ass, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and on our website, all down in the description below. And remember, please fill out the survey in the description down below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you.